Good morning, everyone. Thank you for the great music, by the way. I, I do appreciate that every Sunday. Faithful servants who minister in music. And we're going to be doing the ministry fair in August. And music is one of the many ministries that we have here at CBC. So if you're not currently a part of that or interested, there'll be people to talk to and, and you can find out more about that. We're going to be in Psalm 40 today. We're just continuing on in our series. I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, because we're going to be taking a little break um, of Psalms, meaning one Sunday. Next week, Bill Rogers uh, will be here. And if you remember Bill, last time he was here back in December, he spoke on halftime and the second half of our lives and are you ready for the second half. And I was glued to what he was saying because I love sports. And so when he started using sports metaphors, it was like, yeah, I get it. And so it, it connected to me, and I remember it. I don't remember every sermon, even the ones I preach. But I remembered that one because he used that metaphor, and it was beautiful. So Bill's going to be with us next Sunday preaching and sharing about Israel and what God is doing in that land through the gospel and how it's going out. Um, and then I'm going to be taking a little break. On August 5th, I get to be with my uh, daughter and son-in-law down in Salem. They're going to dedicate little Finn my little grandson is going to be dedicated on that Sunday down there, and so we get to be a part of that. How amazingly wonderful that will be to just be there as gra the proud grandparents of little Finn. And then, and Phil Rankin is going to be covering for me a couple Sundays. On the 5th, he's going to finish off book one in Psalms. Psalm 41 is the last chapter in the first book in the book of Psalms. How's that? If you look in your Bibles, you'll see a little note there. And so on August 5th, he's going to be preaching Psalm 41. And then on the 12th, he's going to do a reader's theater with Psalm, the, the great psalm, the longest psalm, the one that's centered on the Word of God, Psalm 119. So we're going to be having reading and music all kind of combined together, centered around the theme of, the, of God's Word in Psalm 119. So it's going to look and feel a little different, but I love every bit of that. And then when I return, we'll continue on in Psalms through the end of summer. So we're not leaving it all together, but we're taking a little, little break. So Psalm 40, a couple things about this chapter that I want to point out before we begin. Number one, it's a backwards psalm. What in the world is he talking about there? By that, I simply mean this. Normally, it's a, it is a psalm of lament, We've been seeing those from really Psalm 37 on through. Personal lament, David is pouring out his heart, heart to the Lord, but it's, it's in reverse, meaning the good, usually in lament, there's a praise to God at the end. As the psalmist works his way through the psalm, then he comes to a place in his heart where he just rejoices and trusts in the Lord, and he puts his trust out there. This psalm starts with the good. The first 10 verses is about praise for God delivering him and what God has done. And then, starting in verse 11 through the end of the chapter, it's a lament. It's like he's going, speaking in the present now and going, I'm still in trouble. I'm still in a difficult time. I still need the Lord's mercy in my life. But verses 1 through 10 recall a past experience where the Lord took him out of this pit, put his feet on the solid ground. So he's remembering the past and living in the present difficulty, knowing of what God did in the past. 
and how God was faithful. And he's remembering that. And that's helping him in his current situation in difficult times. And so it's kind of this, it's kind of this backward psalm a little bit. The other thing we're going to see in Psalm 40, it's, it's a messianic psalm. There's a clear, beautiful, wonderful picture of Jesus Christ right in the middle of it, verses 6 through 8, really all through the psalm, but really those verses 6 through 8, we're going to see how Jesus Christ is clearly portrayed here in Psalm 40. So, with that in mind, let's begin Psalm 40 and take a look at this great chapter. Verses 1 through 3, the deliverance of David, the deliverance, David's past deliverance. Look what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me, he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This is David looking back. We see three things that David does here in these first three verses. Number one, he remembers. All of the verbs in the first three verses are past, past tense. Something, it's happened in the past. And so David is recalling, he's remembering this incredible act of the Lord on his behalf, of how God brought him out of the situation that he's in. We don't know. We're rarely given exact reasons why these psalms are written, but we know it was a slimy mess. It was a pit. He was stuck in it, and God pulled him out. So David is remembering. You know, there's something about remembering that's powerful. We do it right here. This do in remembrance of me, right? Twice a month, we remember the wonderful, gracious act of the Lord of taking our sins to the cross. There's something powerful about coming together and remembering that together. In marriage, I counsel young couples when we meet, and I say, you know, it's so important that you remember, that you remember this. Now, usually I'm meeting with young couples. They're like in their early to mid-20s. Everything is new, exciting, and fresh, and it's about recalling You know, what was it about that person that really just you fell in love with that first time you met them and that you've really grown to love in the days since? And then I tell them this. I said, okay, I want you to remember that because marriage and life can get difficult. It can get complicated. It can, there can be hurt. There can be grief. There can be loss. There can be a lot of things down that road of life and We don't know what's down that road. But here's what I want you to do in your marriage. Remember the good. Hold on to those things. Keep them in your mind and go back and revisit them. So remembering. David's remembering this. Number two, he's waiting. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. The Hebrew there is kind of almost a double. It's like saying, in waiting, I waited. That's kind of really almost a literal translation there of what it's talking about. It's this waiting patiently for the Lord. None of us likes to wait. I don't like to wait. When I go through a fast food line, I don't like to wait. Isn't that the whole point of fast food, if you think about it? So if you're waiting, you're like, what is wrong here? Um, Disneyland, um, 
waiting for something to come in the mail. It drives us crazy, doesn't it? There's something about waiting that kind of gets to us, and it can really make us, it kind of makes us nervous and angsty. But I'm waiting on the Lord. I patiently wait on the Lord, David said. We've seen this in the prior uh, chapters. Let me read just a couple of verses going back into Psalm 37. Verse 7, he says, uh, let's make sure I get the right verse here. 37, verse 7, because I'm looking at verse 36. Have you ever do that in your Bible? 37, 7 says, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Wait patiently. He's going to come through. 38, 15, the next chapter. It says, Lord, I just, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. I wait for you. There's that patient waiting. Then Psalm 39, we saw this last week. In Psalm 39, now, Lord, what do I look for? What am I waiting for, Lord? My hope is in you. Hope is a f- forward looking into the future, anticipation of trust in the Lord. So I'm waiting on you, Lord. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. So in the past three chapters, it's been I'm looking ahead to something. I'm anticipating something in the future. In this chapter, he's looking back. It's a past reality. He's experienced God's deliverance. It's a reality in his life, but he's looking back into the past. So he's not looking forward now. He's recalling and remembering. I'm waiting on you, Lord. And then finally, I'm crying out, David says. He heard my cry. I've been crying to the Lord, and the good news is he heard me. You know, it's okay to lament to the Lord. I've been talking about this, and I think one of the wonderful things that Psalms does for us, it gives us permission. It even gives us some of the the vocabulary and some of the expressions about how do we express our pain, our frustration, our anxiety to a God that we love. How do we do that? And that's the Psalms of lament. One, in fact, one-third of the Psalms in the 150 are Psalms of lament. So we need this, it's important. And it's important to understand that when I express my hurt to the Lord, that's not wrong. What I'm doing is I'm bringing them to a God who I know cares, I know he hears me, and I know he's gonna respond. And that's what David is doing. He said, he, I just, I'm just crying out here. James 4 speaks to this a little bit. Verses eight and 10 of James. James tells us, come near to God. He will come near to you. There's a part that we need to play in this. We need to draw near to God, and sometimes it looks like lament. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Then in verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. There's this idea of drawing near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself, and you will be lifted up by the Lord's hand. Sometimes pride is what gets in the way. We feel like, hey, I got this covered. I don't need to cry out. I'm good. I know it'll just pass, or, you know, I can handle it all on my own. I don't need other people in this. I definitely don't need the Lord. And so we hold it in. And what David wants us to hear this morning is it's okay. Cry out to him. So what does the Lord do? There's four things that the Lord does in these first three verses. It says, he turned to me and he heard my cry. He turned to me. There's something in communication. We've been learning this in a class that we've been doing. 
as board and staff is turning, when you listen to somebody, you turn and listen to them. It's square, they call it squaring up. You know when you're looking away from someone when they're talking to you, it kind of sends a pretty loud message that you really don't care or you're distracted. But he says, the Lord, he turned to me. There's this beautiful picture. It's like the Lord's face is giving me full attention right now, and I know he's, he's listening to what I'm saying. His attention is focused. He heard. And, and when it talks about God hearing us, whenever the Bible speaks of that, hearing, it isn't just hearing and letting it go in kind of in one ear and out the other. It's God does something about it. God moves. He acts. He does something on account of them. Oftentimes, as a husband or as a guy, a person, I hear with my physical ears, but I don't really listen, right? We all understand the difference of I heard that, but I didn't really hear it. Or I heard that, but I'm really not doing anything about it. Guilty, right? God is not that way. When he hears, he does. He acts. He turned to me, he heard my cry, he lifted me out of this slimy pit, this mud, this muck, this mire. The image that came to my mind immediately is a story in the book of Jeremiah when Jeremiah the prophet was prophesying about the Babylonian captivity. And Zedekiah, who was the king at the time, said, shut him up. It's not true. We don't want to listen to him. I'm tired of hearing this story about the Babylonian captivity and the sinfulness of us, we. So let's get rid of this prophet. So they threw him in a cistern that was muddy. And Jeremiah 38, 6, there's this picture. They took Jeremiah, they put him into the cistern the king's, of the king's son, Malkajah, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. You know, it's a, in some ways it almost would be better to have the water, but then you would have drowned, so that's probably not good either. But it had this mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. So you can get this picture of this old cistern that's, had water in it recently because there's a lot of mud in the bottom and he's just sinking. And he had to be, re- he was rescued and delivered out of the mud and out of the mire. And that's the illustration of the picture. In biblical times, the story of Joseph is another illustration of this where people would use these cisterns as kind of a pit of captivity. They threw Joseph into a cistern and it had no water in it for a period of time until they sold him to the traders in Egypt. So there's this image. You're, you're stuck, you're unable to help yourself, you're in, a, you're in a tough situation. You're unable to do anything to help yourself. So what are some of the pits that we have in our lives? Well, sin and the consequences of sin. David's been pretty open in the preceding chapters about the fact that he understands he's sinned and now he's suffering consequences before his God. And he, he's laid that out. How about failure? I failed the first time, guess what? I'm stuck. I can't move forward because I'm a failure. That can be a pit. How about addictions and destructive habits that we have in our lives? These things that enter in and then we can't get rid of them and we need help. We're stuck. We're in the mud. Circumstances in our lives, things that we can do nothing about but we're in it. That can be a pit. Physical suffering, sickness, illness, 
different handicaps that we might have. That's a, that can be a pit, can't it? Maybe it's, David expresses this one often, the idea of the enemy is there attacking us. I'm innocent. My enemy wants, he has it out for me. Lord, I need help. I'm in this pit because of my enemy. These are the pits, and there's others maybe where you find yourself in and you need someone to come and pull you out. That's the testimony. So what did God do? He lifted him out, and then this image, he put my foot, he set my feet on a rock. From, you go from the muck, the slime, the pit, to a place where you have stability, to a place where you're going to be secure, and that's where God has put you. Every time I read this, I think of that, which is the mural over to my right, the words of Jesus about building our house, not on the sand or the mud or the mire or whatever, but on the rock, right? On Jesus Christ, his words. So building our house on the rock. That's what happened to David here. He's been delivered. God's put him on the rock. And then, verse 3, this beautiful phrase, he put a new song in my mouth. The plural form of the word song here is really the same word as psalm, the book of psalms. It's like David said, okay, and he literally did, because we have Psalm 40, but he said, the Lord delivered me out of the pit, he put my foot on the rock, and I'm going to write a song about it, a new song. God has put this into my heart, into my life. It's just this spontaneous praise that's happening with David here. You know, with music, um, we are blessed in Christian culture to have amazing music all around us. There's old hymns that tell us of the faithfulness of God that use words sometimes that we need a dictionary for, right? A thesaurus maybe, but you know what? They're good, and they're in our hymnals. You, hear them on the, you can hear them on the radio. There's the hymn jam once a month. It's recalling God's faithfulness in our hymns. How great thou art still brings tears to my eyes, some of those great songs. But what I love about the Christian music is there's new songs being written all of the time. So whether it's out of a hymn book, whether it's Pandora on my computer, or whether it's I've got the radio cranked on the Christian radio station and I'm cruising down I-205, singing at the top of my lungs a new song of praise to the Lord, that's the spirit. It's just this continuous praise. I would love it if some of you in our congregation would write a new song. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And sing it for us, and we would sing along with you. That would be a beautiful thing. I love the song that was done at the very end. Correct me if I'm wrong. You two, Bono and company, they were somewhere in their experience, they were pulled out of a pit. I don't know the story there, they experienced God putting their foot on a rock, and they just wanted to write a song about it, and they did. And I love it that you, that you pulled that song out today. That was beautiful to hear, and thank you for putting that together. But here's, look at verse, the end of verse 3. It says, many will see, many will fear. This song that you've put in my mouth, they're going to put their trust in the Lord. Oftentimes, I think that we think that we have to put on this face of, as Christians of everything's wonderful and hunky-dory and only that will draw people that don't know the Lord in and how wrong that is. I really believe that it's all of the above. 
When things are going great and you see God's grace and his mercy and his gifts in your life, praise God then. That's powerful. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord, okay? But over here, when you're down in the pits, you're going through tough times, sing a new song. Because you know what? God's in it. And it isn't that, as Christians, we've got it all figured out and everything's in a row. It's we know a God who can help me when things are not in a row. In fact, things are kind of going sideways. So I'm gonna praise God over here. I'm gonna praise God when things are going fantastic. And I'm over at the coast enjoying no campfire this year, but normally a campfire, disappointed about that. Yesterday, we were out riding bikes. We were just enjoying the beauty. I mean, it was amazing, the river, we were downtown Portland, the smells of the, the food, um, just enjoying the company of being together and physical exercise, and it was good. And there are days like that, then there's other days. Things are tough, right? Praise God, he put a new song in my mouth. Well, David's gonna praise the Lord. Look at verses four through 10. Because of what God has done, because I want people to join in with me in this new song, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. There's so much, God, that you've done in my life. To be honest, I could not tell them all. I don't have the time and I don't have the words. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. This is where we see Jesus, and we'll get to this in a little bit. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you've opened, Lord. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I've come. It's written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. So there's some things going on. It starts out in verses four and five of this idea that David is giving the Lord his praise. Blessed are those. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Trusting God rather than looking to the proud or he mentions turning aside to false gods or lies. It's better to trust God than to follow people who are proud. People on this side who figure they've got it all figured out. It's good not to depend on those type people or to become like them, but put your trust in the Lord. It's good not to turn aside to false gods. You know, when I fail to trust the Lord, when I follow the, the proud, I'm following a false god. I'm putting my faith and my trust in something other than him. And any time I do that, I might not have an idol on my counter, but the reality is I've turned aside and I'm following falsehood, a false god. We need to be trusting the Lord. 
Verse five, there's a change. It's a subtle change, but I think it's an important one. It's a grammatical change from third person. He's been speaking about the Lord, Yahweh, right? L-O-R-D, all caps. The Lord, third person. Now, verse five, he, he says, Lord, my God. In verse five, he, second person, personal. He's internalizing this and saying, this is my God. This is my Lord. He's addressing God in a very personal way, and he says, your works and your plans, they're just too many to count. Miraculous deeds, Lord, that you've done in the past, that you do, are amazing, and I I can't say enough about that. And then this idea of his plans. I think in that word plans is God's thoughts, his desires for us, present, future. God thinks about us. Does that ever amaze you? Sometimes I th- we get in this, that's why I, I love it that he went from third person to second person here. Because David is saying, the Lord, he's out there, he's great, and he is. He's done all these things, but you know what? I know personally, he knows me, he thinks about me, he has a plan for me. Think about that. The Lord knows who you are, intimately, and he thinks about you. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean it's all about you, but what it does is it helps us to internalize the fact that God is aware of us and he loves us greatly, his plans and his thoughts for us. Verses six to eight, David says, I want to dedicate, because of who God is, all that he's done for me, I want to dedicate my life to him. Verses six to eight is this dedication idea. Look what David says in these verses six to eight here. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you've opened, God. Burnt offerings, sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. In verse six there, it mentions sacrifice, offering, burnt offerings, sin offerings. What's going on in that verse? What's going on is that basically in those four terms, he's summarizing the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's the, he's incorporating all of them. So sacrifice and offering, offerings to God with blood, that's the sacrifice, and then the offerings would be those without blood things that you would bring to the Lord that didn't require the shedding of blood. And then burnt offering and sin offering. Burnt offerings are those offerings of total consecration where the entire offering is burnt up. There's nothing left. Oftentimes in offerings, there would be a piece that the priests would keep and eat that were cooked on the fire. In the burnt offerings, everything was burnt up. It was a total consecration, complete And then the sin offerings is bringing your sins to be atoned for before the Lord. So what David is saying is all of the sacrificial system that existed in the Old Testament, the Lord is saying, I do not desire. I'm not requiring what's going on. David, right in the middle of this says, but my ears you've opened. There's a weird Hebrew word there, it almost, it literally means to excavate. It's, translators kind of went, huh? What's, what, it's a strange Hebrew word, but the idea is opening up his ears. 
David says, I'm listening, Lord. Then he said, I've come. It's written about me in the scroll. What in the world is that talking about? I want to turn back to Deuteronomy. And this was brought to my attention. We were meeting the other day with a group of pastors. And I was doing some reading on this. And a lot of the commentaries were a little lost and going, I'm not sure what David's referring to. But one of the pastors brought this up, and I thought it was good. It's back in the book of Deuteronomy. The situation is the people have come to the new land. The first generation that left Egypt has died away. So Deuteronomy is literally the word Deuteronomy means second law. It's the younger generation now is rehearing God's law that God had given to them at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt. And they're rehearsing it, reviewing it, being reminded of it prior to entering into the promised land. So one of the sections is in Deuteronomy 17, and it has to do with the king. Okay, now here's what it says about the king. Now this hasn't happened yet. This is Deuteronomy, okay? But this is God's instructions when they get into the land and, and the kings start to rule. Here's what he says. Starting in verse 14. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Oh, yeah, that does happen, doesn't it? Down the road. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you or one who is not an Israelite. Requirement number one, obviously, is important. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. No going back, okay? For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Hmm. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. He's not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He's to turn from the law to the he's not to turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. David is saying, in essence, I believe, he's looking back in that Deuteronomy and the scroll, which would have been the Torah, the first five books, that would have that would have been his scripture. And he's saying, Remember what Moses said about the king. That's what I want to do. I want to follow the, the law. I don't want to turn to the right or to the left from what God says to be true. And I don't want to appear any better than anybody else. I want to be a good king. It's written in the scroll. I want to follow it. My ears are open, Lord. I'm giving myself to you. I, I, I just want to follow you. There's this consecration. Well, that, that is great, but there's so much more here, and the book of Hebrews brings it out. If you could shoot Hebrews up here, this is the story and how we see Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, here we enter upon one of the most wonderful passages in the whole of the Old Testament, these three verses. 
a passage in which the incarnate Son of God is seen not through a glass, darkly, but as it were, face to face. That's how clear we're going to see Jesus. So here's Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 18. Now going back to sacrifices for a moment, David says, I want to obey God. It's not just about bringing sacrifices to him. I actually want to obey and hear what God has to say. It's not about the outward ritual of sacrifice. It's about the inward heart and the desire to follow God. His predecessor, Saul, did not do that. In fact, 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel's words to Saul, if you remember the story, where he had not obeyed God and not killed the Amalekites. So now he brings offerings to the Lord, okay? And then Samuel meets up with him and tells him this. Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much in, as in obeying the Lord? The answer is no. God wants obedience in our heart, not just bringing things to him. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed better than the fat of rams. David was very much aware of Saul, what he had done, and Samuel's words to Saul about obedience over sacrifice. So Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 18. Sorry about that, Ethan. I'm taking you on a little, little maze here through. Look what this says. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With the burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. He's quoting that passage from Psalm 40, now in the book of Hebrews. And then he goes on. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, it was the right thing to do them, because God had instructed them to do it. Then he said, here I am, and he's speaking of Christ here. I have come to do your will. This is Jesus' words, Paul says, the author of Hebrews. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Day after day, every priest stands, they perform their religious duties again and again, they offer the same sacrifices. It's this perpetual day after day, which could never take away sins. It was required, but ultimately it could not do what Christ did, which is take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. That's a quote from the book of Jeremiah. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Sacrifices and offerings I have not desired, 
but a body. All of these things, look at how Jesus is seen. Verse 5 says, when Christ came into the world, he said this. So the author of Hebrews is crediting those words from David to Christ. Christ was speaking this. Wow. A body you prepared for me. That was inserted in place of the idea of hearing, you've opened my ears. Here, it's a body you have prepared for me. Where does that come from? It comes from the Septuagint. Long story here, but the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament before Christ. Because in that time, the Greeks had taken over the world and 70 to 72 Jewish scholars got together in Alexandria, Egypt, and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And they called it the Septuagint. And by the time of Jesus, in the New Testament writers, they referred to the Septuagint. They relied upon it as being accurate. And so the Septuagint has a little insert that's a little different. It speaks of a body that's been prepared. Another reference to Christ taking on flesh. He came in the form of a human for my sin. Here I am, this is Jesus. He spoke of being the Messiah, the open coming of the Messiah. It's written about me in the scroll, Jesus said. David said, that portion of Deuteronomy was speaking to me and I'm listening to it, but Jesus now said, you know, all of that stuff that you read in the Old Testament, it was speaking of me. There's at least four or five times where Jesus said that very clearly. In John 5, 39, he said, all those words that were spoken, they testify of me. That's what was written in the scroll. It's my story. I'm the theme. I'm the center. I am what the Bible is all about, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have come to do your will. Christ, when he walked this earth, he spoke of doing his Father's will and being in tune with his, his Father and doing what his Father asked him to do. And then find this idea of obeying. Jesus sets aside the first to establish the second, Paul says in Hebrews. In offering himself for our sins once for all, he simultaneously fulfills and abolishes the Old Testament law. Everything that those laws were about, he was. So when he came and he sacrificed himself once for all, the perfect sacrifice for sins, sacrifices were done away with, there was no need because everything that God required was done through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And then it speaks of, he goes on to speak about how this law is written on our hearts in the new covenant. The old covenant has gone away, the new covenant is here. And in the new covenant, it's the Holy Spirit. The law is written on our hearts. It's not about external obedience and trying to obey, it's allowing the Holy Spirit now to work in our lives, to cause us to obey. So we see this beautiful picture of Jesus coming through the words of David way back in Psalm 40. And the author of Hebrews brings those out for us. David says, I'm gonna praise you, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna obey you. And then in verse nine, I'm gonna shout it from the rooftops. Look at verse nine and 10. I'm gonna proclaim everything about you, Lord. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. 
I'm not going to shut up. Look what he says. I'm not going to seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I'm not going to hide your righteousness in my heart. We, we hide God's word in our heart, but he says, I'm not going to hide your righteousness because I'm going to talk about that a lot. It's good to memorize, hide God's word in our heart, yes, but your righteousness, I'm going to yap about that all day long, and it's going to be a very public proclamation. I'm not going to hide your righteousness. I'm going to speak of your faithfulness, of your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. The word, the term great assembly is used there at the beginning and the end of that little portion twice. This idea of as king in the festivals as the people would gather to celebrate God's goodness and to be there for the sacrifices, David as the king would be the one giving proclamations. And he said, during those times when the great assembly is gathered, I'm gonna talk about you. I'm gonna talk all about you. And this word, this word in Hebrew is a proclamation is, this Hebrew word means to bring news. That's what it means. This morning, downstairs in the adult education hour, Phil taught us on the evangelion, the good news in Greek. That's the Greek, same word. I'm going to proclaim, I'm going to evangelize, share the good news, the gospel. Your saving acts, David says. I'm going to speak of that. That's what we are called to do as believers. We're called to speak, to share the good news of God's saving acts in our life. That's evangelism, is it not? I speak of the gospel. I'm going to proclaim it. Look at the attributes of God in these verses. We have the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, the saving help of God, which is his grace, by the way. It's him reaching out to us when we couldn't do it. It's his grace. We have the love of God, the steadfast love, the hesed, that beautiful Hebrew word of what love really means. I'm gonna be faithful to my promises, God says, my covenant with you. It's steadfast, it's faithful love. Truth, his faithfulness, all these attributes I'm going to be telling people about and bold proclamation. So verses 1 through 10, we have David just joyful and expressing his gratitude and being thankful, you know, about how God delivered him out of the pit and he's praising God and putting his trust and dedicating his life and proclaiming. And then in verse 11, it's like David goes back and says, I'm in need. <laughs> Help. Here's verse 11 through the end. Do not, please, do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. I thought you were out of the pit, David. Well, guess what? He's kind of back in the pit. Again, he's, he's going through a tough time right now. Okay, he's recalling where the, when God led him out of the pit, but right now, guess what? I got issues. My sins, there it is again, have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Okay, if that's not enough, be pleased, save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. Lament, personal lament. He's just crying out to the Lord. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. So not, not only do I have my sin working against me, my enemies are 
back at it again. They want to bring me down. They want to bring disgrace into my life. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May all who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. Exclamation point. The Lord, he's great. But as for me, I am poor and I am needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help, you're my deliverer, you are my God, do not delay. So again, from thanksgiving to lament, from being out of the pit, back into the pit, in a sense, he's feeling that again, so he's coming back to the Lord in personal lament and saying, I need your help, I need your help so much. Just like you did not withhold, just like David says, I did not withhold my praise from you, I did not, I did not keep my mouth shut, he prays the same thing to the Lord there in verse 11. He says, do not withhold your mercy from me. I didn't withhold, Lord, so please, I'm asking, I need your mercy. Would you not withhold it from me? I need it greatly. Remembering who God is in the middle of the suffering. His mercy, he speaks of these things. His mercy, his love, his faithfulness. There would always protect me. He's remembering who God is in, these, in this time. Because of the inadequacies of sacrifice to take away his sin, David realized his sins are too great. He understands. These sacrifices are good, but they don't take away my sin. I need to bring it back to God. And the sins are, it's, it's overwhelming me here. Then, if that's not enough, I mentioned verse 14, 15, he talks about his enemies. They're back at it. It's being, not being vindictive when we pray to God for help from our enemies. It's not about being vindictive and taking matters into my own hands. It's about praying for God's vindication. You see the subtle difference there? Don't take revenge. We're told in Scripture not to do that. Instead, trust God. Don't be vindictive about your enemies. Instead, pray for God's vindication. He'll take care of it. He's the one that will do it well. He will do it fairly, and he will do it in his time, and we can trust him for that. We will not take matters into our own hands. And look what he says in verse 16 at the end. I love this. May all who seek you this is what we need to be saying. The Lord is great. It's interesting in verse 14 and 15, he says, may all who want to take my life, he's speaking of his enemies, may all they be put to shame. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, be spoiled. But may all who trust in you, who seek you, rejoice and be glad in you. So he's been speaking about the all as his enemies. Now he changes years in verse 16 may all who put their trust in you may those who believe in you and then look what he says in verse 17 he ends on this note and maybe this is a good place for all of us to end he just simply says I'm poor and I'm needy Lord that's me but as for me I, I'm just speaking for myself David I'm poor I'm needy may the Lord think of me remember his thoughts are there the Lord thinks of us. His plans 
are there for us. And he's calling on that. Verse five, he mentioned it. Now he's calling the Lord and said, would you please again think of me, Lord? I'm in a world of hurt. I need you. I am poor and I'm needy. When I hear the word poor and needy, I think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And it really starts out with the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus was telling his disciples was, start there, poor in spirit. Understand you can't do it on your own. Understand you have a big need. You're poor and needy, just like David says. Understand you need someone to come into your life and help you. You're stuck in a pit. Start there, and then blessed are those because you'll have the kingdom of heaven. There's a promise there. There's going to be a deliverer. He's going to come. But you have to understand who you are, poor in spirit. If you figure you got it all figured out, don't need a savior, guess what? You won't be blessed. And you won't have a part in the kingdom of heaven. But if you understand your need, then you will. Conclusion, just three things quickly. Number one, three habits for pit dwellers. How's that? Just like David. Number one, remember. Remember God's acts in your past, his faithfulness in the past. He took you out of that pit. He drew you up on the rock. He he gave you a new song. He's going to do it again. Remember. Cry out. God, I need your help. Don't keep it inside. Cry out to him and wait patiently for him. Christ is our complete sacrifice. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, David says in verse 6. You know, pleasing God is not about me bringing my sacrifice to God. It's about God providing the perfect sacrifice for me. That's the story that we need to know. That's the story that David wants us to hear. That's the story that Hebrews wants us to hear, and all of Scripture is. When it comes to pleasing God, it's about his sacrifice for me, not the other way around, and not bringing something to him. All we bring is our heart. That's all we bring. It pleased God to crush him, Isaiah 53, verse 10. It pleased God to do this, to put Christ on the cross for you and me. That's what pleases God. Then finally, the whole pit illustration. It's, it's a picture of the gospel. The reality is without Christ, we were in the pit. It's called sin. It's called being lost. It's called being unable to help yourself in your stuck. You need someone to come and rescue you and get you out of there. And the only way that happens is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our salvation. And when he pulls us out of that pit, he puts our feet on the rock. Again, the mural over there tells us a story. The rock is Jesus, and the sure foundation and the security that comes with knowing him. And then we need to tell others about it. Don't keep our mouths shut, right? Just like David, we need to go out and talk and even get a little loud about it. That's okay. Tell others about God's faithfulness, about his mercy, about his truth. That's where we're to be. So praise be to God that we've been pulled out of the pit as those who love him. Amen?